0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City.
2: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Good morning.
0: Good morning. This is so civilized, this introduction. Just really happy to be here on the program. (laughs) Good sirs. Hello. Uh, Who's on the show this week, Evan? Uh, This week I spoke
2: to Laurel Braitman. Laurel is uh, most recently the author of What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss and Love. That's just out. Um, but I've actually known Laurel for years. She was a regular performer at Pop-Up Magazine, the now legendary uh, live journalism show. She writes a lot about science. She has a PhD. She's written about science for many magazines, appears on the radio. She wrote a book called Animal Madness, which was really a, really a fun book about the mental health of animals. Um, she also teaches doctors to write at Stanford. We talked a little bit about how she got that job. Um, but her new book is uh, a pretty big change for her because it's a memoir exploring some of the losses in her own life back to when she was a child. It's a very moving book. And, uh, I was thrilled to talk to her.
0: You guys, I have to, I have to share something about this book, which is that a, a galley of it arrived at my house and my wife Meredith took it and read it. And while I have not yet read this book, Meredith read it and absolutely loved it, loved it so much. That when I told her we were recording this intro, she said, you have to say how much I love that book. I loved that book. I have a comment about galleys also <laughs> for all the publicists out there. I want to understand the psychology behind sending two or three galleys to the same person. It's uh, podcast at longform.org. <laughs> Is it, I'm not criticizing you. I just want to understand the business logic of... Sending multiple copies of, of the same book to the same person I think you might be criticizing them a little bit <laughs> uh, I appreciate all of the galleys But in single copy uh, Format <laughs> uh, We're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media Who help us make this show uh, Thanks very much to everyone over at Vox Now here's Evan With Laurel Breitman.
2: Laurel Welcome to the Longform Podcast.
3: Thank you so much. I have wanted to be here basically since I became a writer.
2: We should say, like, I've, I've known you as a colleague for many years around Pop-Up Magazine, the live magazine that until very recently was a big part of both of our lives at different points. But I can't say that I knew as much about you as I now know, having read your memoir, um, which is an interesting experience to kind of know someone one way and then get this sort of full accounting or more full accounting that you had before. And uh, the book is amazing, but I think it would be helpful to people who don't know you to first describe a little bit about your work as a writer now, before we get into like how you grew up and where that all came from.
3: I'd say for the last 10 to 15 years, most of my stories and the things I've been interested in have been popular takes on science or the stories behind scientific breakthroughs that we might not understand, um, particularly science and medicine. So I'd really say I was a popular science writer and writer about medical topics um, and history of medicine, but ideally in an interesting, fun way. And that, that's that been primarily my focus up until uh, the last few years where I decided to write about my own life.
2: Well, it's funny that your last book is like about the interior lives of animals. And then you kind of like took that same lens and, and turned it on the animal of yourself.
3: Absolutely. I'm so glad you noticed. I was hoping someone would notice that. Because I think from the outside, if you look at my work in a cursory way, it it might seem strange, you know, that here's this person who writes about scientific stories um, about non-human animals, about non-human nature, and then all of a sudden is is writing a memoir um, about her own life and about love and heartbreak and our dreams and how we become who we're meant to be. Uh, but to me, they're really related. I never thought about myself uh, as not an animal, and I've always been curious about the animal mind um, and also animal identity and animal emotional lives. And so this is just the next step in a journey, I think, for me when it comes to the stories I'm interested in telling most.
2: I don't know if it was the first pop-up story you did or just the first one that really uh, that I could never shake, which was a story about animals that were accused of committing crimes.
3: It was not my first story. My first story was actually with you back when you still lived in San Francisco. And I don't know if you remember this, but you helped me edit a story About a student of Sigmund Freud's, uh, an amazing woman who lived in New York and had hundreds of pet squirrels and worked out lots of mysteries of the human mind uh, via her home squirrel zoo. Um, But, no, I also did (laughs) a story about animals who commit crimes. Um, I think you might be thinking of a story I did about a parrot in the Witness Protection Program. Yes. Um, And my question was, can animals, non-human animals who witness crimes, can they testify? Can they be reliable witnesses? And parrots are an excellent case because they talk um, and they talk about what they see. So, yeah, that that was not my first story. I don't know how many stories I've done at this point. So many.
2: Well, I mean, it speaks to uh, how many stories and also aging that the story I remembered was one that you did on stage, but I didn't remember the one that I actually edited and worked on with you. But now I do remember now that you mentioned it. That was also that was also a wonderful and very weird story. Where do you find these weird stories?
3: Oh man, the squirrel story, I was working on my doctoral dissertation, um doing research at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and I was working with an amazing curator there in their library and she had told me there was a weird box. I was there looking at interesting um notes and journal articles that people had written about animal emotions and Buried in one of these boxes were these incredible drawings and it turned out to be sets because the woman who was Sigmund Freud's student also made films with her squirrels and had elaborate sets, uh, many of which were painted New York skylines. And it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. Um, <laughs> so I just, you know, fell down a journalistic rabbit hole trying to figure out who was this woman, who were her squirrel actors, what happened to these films. Um So yeah, I, you know, where do stories come from? I feel like the metaphorical broom closet almost always. And
2: this sort of era that we're talking about where you, you were doing a lot of stories for pop-up. Also your last book came out, Animal Madness came out and the book was successful, great reviews, New York Times bestseller list, and you were doing Ted talks. And I would say this ties back into your memoir because like from outward appearances, you were not just successful, but doing just incredibly well. And also like living a kind of epic life, like flying off all sorts of places, Alaska, doing the stories, National Geographic, whoever else you had done all this field work and all these crazy places. And I feel like one of the aspects of the memoir that most caught me up was seeing that behind all of that, you were struggling. And I'm wondering like, At what point in that you started thinking, I wanna write about myself?
3: Oh, like if I could have gotten away with not writing about myself, Evan, the truth is I still would not have written about myself. such vast and deep imposter syndrome about writing about my old life. You know, I'm a deeply privileged person for all the reasons you just said. Um, And I'm scared that once I put this book in the world, people are going to say, oh, poor you. Like, was it hard to do a dead dog? You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Which is true. But I, my life was becoming unmanageable in a way. I was using success in many ways, like a drug and I'd say like an analgesic on the sorts of difficult feelings I hadn't wanted to face truly since childhood. Um, and we are rewarded in this culture for these kind of outward forms of success that often have nothing to do with what's going on inside of you. And, you know, I, I didn't have substance abuse disorder. There, there weren't some other things that you might have made it more urgent for me to pause on what I was doing and try to understand why I was doing it. And frankly, like there never really was like a huge mega failure or something that made me stop. Like I'm, I'm still a Stanford professor. Like I'm still, you know, waiting for those good reviews of this book. Like, you know, I I haven't stopped being like a rapacious worker um, or hustler, but it was becoming almost impossible for me to stay in relationships I realized I wasn't open to the kind of authentic connection and love that I told myself I desperately wanted. And I'd say more than anything else, I just got really tired. And the more trophies that piled up and the more brass rings I was able to grab onto, um, the kind of lasting happiness and confidence I thought would come with those things just didn't. And so I think in some ways, the more successful I got the jarring disconnect between how I felt interiorly became more and more obvious.
2: Did you immediately sort of go all the way back to your childhood and say, okay, actually, here's where I need to look? Or did it take you a process to work your way back to there?
3: Well, the way I wrote about it in the book is actually exactly how it happened. I was breaking up with my best friend and girlfriend at the time and was really messy. And I loved her desperately and just couldn't make it work. And she loved me too. And I wasn't sure why I had blown it up. um, But I knew i had blown up so many things like that in the last few years. And I just couldn't stay with someone past two or three months, which I'm not saying that being in a long term relationship means you're emotionally healthy inside. Like we all know plenty of people who are in the long term relationships who are not okay, right? Um, and, and plenty of people could be unpartnered and be totally fine. But I really wanted it. And yet my decisions were constantly getting in my own way. And I was driving away from our breakup conversation, snotting all over myself, sobbing on the 101 South. And I turned on. KQED. And there was a show on at that very moment. It was a This American Life episode about a place in Utah called The Sharing Place where kids went after a loss. And the head of the program was talking about early losses and how if kids don't get the kind of support that they were getting at this place, that they're liable to run um, from true connection and loving relationships. And I it hit me in the chest. I pulled the car over. I immediately started Googling, is there something like this around here in the Bay Area? I found one. I tried to enroll as a kid. <laughs> and I called a bunch of other places. And I was like, I know I'm in my 30s, but and these are for kids, but would you consider having me here? And they were all like, this is real creepy. No, you cannot come here as a geriatric teenager. Um, But you can be a facilitator for kids. You can train in how to support kids. And also, by the way, most of our facilitators are grown-up kids who suffered a loss as a young person. And so I didn't start that thinking for sure I would write about it in some way. I guess when you're a writer, there's always that question, but that's not why I did it. I I didn't think, oh, here here is a writing project. What I really thought was like, oh... I need some help to survive myself.
2: So maybe we should talk a little bit about the tragedy that you suffered. And again, it's like an example of, I feel like you don't know what people are going through, like all of your bios over the years, like oftentimes it'll say something like she grew up on an avocado farm. Like I think from an exterior point of view, like there's an idyllic aspect to your childhood, but to whatever extent you want to, maybe you could describe what happened the the ideal versus the reality
3: sure i mean i would say my my childhood and it's actually where i live now i i now am a commercial avocado and citrus grower with my family again um after a 30 year hiatus um my childhood was idyllic in a, in a lot of ways um this place is so beautiful We grow avocados, lemons, and some oranges commercially. We grow pomegranates. There's probably five hawks overhead while I'm in uh, this closet talking to you. Um, Right now, because it's winter, you walk outside and you're just knocked backwards by the smell of lemon blossoms um, and avocado blossoms. I mean, it, it is spectacular. On a clear day, we can see the Channel Islands. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. You know, I would leave the house in the morning with a snack um, in a bandana tied around the end of a stick, and I could come back at dinner time, and there was nothing that, you know, could happen to me, and I would play in the creek, and I think that's probably why I'm a writer, you know, I just had to entertain myself all day long. Um, And yet, and yet, just like always, there was also something really hard going on, which was when I was three, my dad was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and he was given six months to live. Um, He was told to get his affairs in order. It was a really aggressive bone cancer called osteosarcoma. And this was in the early 80s. Chemotherapy for bone cancer was really new. It was horribly toxic. Um, There was a tiny, tiny sliver of a chance that he would live to a year if he had metastases, then his odds of a year or even a five-year survivorship rate was just abysmally low. So we were told to get ready um, and say goodbye. And then he didn't die. You know, It was a miracle. It ended up he, he did have metastatic cancer. And he lived throughout my entire childhood, through my adolescence. But we never knew how much time we'd have. So we would get these kind of stays. So we would be able to plan ahead for like six weeks to the next scan. Um, and then the next scan would be clear. So then maybe we'd get another three months, um, and tumors would pop up in some other part of his body. And so sometimes we'd get two years, sometimes we'd get six months. The longest we got was four and a half years. Um, so we always lived with the ticking clock of mortality. You know, it had a seat at the table always, always, always. And I think that was the blessing and the curse of my life. Really? I I don't take... even a minute for granted um also it's kind of anxiety producing you know to feel your mortality all the time
2: yeah and also there there seemed to be this uh because he was a doctor he he went and found treatments that would extend his life but also was constantly preparing you for him departing and what he wanted for you and so how did that interact with sort of like your desire to be a writer and your drive to be a writer?
3: I think there was never an option for me growing up to not be excellent. And, and I hate, you know, how that sounds. I, I don't think of myself as, you know, excellent, but that was the expectation. And it didn't really matter how I got there. Like, I think he would have been happy you know uh with me as long as i did anything you know uh prize worthy i could have been a chemist you know um uh physicist there was a brief while he was really obsessed with the idea of me being a cia agent i don't really know why he really liked the bodyguard the movie
2: you would have been great
3: yeah it would have been fun um you would have
2: excelled i'm certain (laughs) you would have achieved excellence as a cia agent
3: you know i think my father's plan for excellence. And maybe this is true of any parent who cares deeply about if their kid is going to be okay. You know, he knew he was going to die. And so he wanted to make sure I was going to be all right afterwards. And I think that his way of making himself feel better that I was going to be okay was knowing that I would be very, very good at something or ideally all things. And that if I was good at things, Not not just career stuff, but, you know, um, fishing and fixing a carburetor and squishing a man's eyes out if I was attacked. I mean, he really went down the list, right, of like survivorship skills. Um, If I was good at all of those things, I was more likely to be okay too. And so I don't blame him in, in many ways. You know, I think he's, he's not wrong. You know, life can be easier when you know how to protect yourself in a dark parking lot um, and also know how to get, you know, a professorship. Like those have been helpful skills in my life. The problem is when that becomes the focus. And I think the sicker he got, the more desperate he got that I would be exceptional and the pressure of living with that you know it never really occurred to me to rebel you know i'm a, i'm a good older daughter and in those years that many teenagers are naturally testing the limits of their parents you know my family was going through a really hard time. I I wasn't going to go stay out late and go drinking and stress them out. You know, they were already deeply stressed out. And so I really never got to rebel, I think, in a healthy way. I was too busy checking off the list of things both my parents wanted for me, frankly. And so it really wasn't until my mid-30s where I kind of looked at the list and realized, wow, I've I've done all these things, but it hasn't quite... Come with the feeling of safety or joy I was promised.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a
1: Like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course.
2: There are a couple of just very painful and traumatic moments that you're revisiting Um, including when your father died and also when you have a dog that died, I mean, both of those in different ways are, are hard to read as a reader. And I'm wondering as a writer, what did it feel like to like sit in those again? And did you have to create a process around writing about those moments?
3: Yes. Uh, I cried so much writing this book. And all I want now is for America to cry with me. You know, <laughs> I think, you know, I've felt this with everything I've ever done, you know, that writing a story or doing a radio piece or doing a pop-up piece, whatever it is, you know, you're you're just flying a flag that you hope other people see and then come stand under with you. And um, so I, I wrote this crying and sad and also happy you know it it has all the human emotions in there longing lust regret shame fear relief um joy and to do that was hard you know i i definitely had to drum up a lot of courage to go back in time and face a lot of the hardest things i mean this book has the hardest moments of my life in it um so i did things like you know for a couple of years i only re- listened to 90s hip hop because I was in high school and that's what I was listening to. And, um, you know, that in 10,000 Maniacs. So I I would go between like 10,000 Maniacs and like Cypress Hill, um, to get into the right headspace in order to write about some of those times. Um, I kept a bottle of my dad's cologne on my desk. He would wear polo uh, when he went into work and smelling that helped me. Um, he was a pipe smoker, shippers tobacco. I found some shippers tobacco online and I would smell that. I, I needed my senses. You know, I really wanted to write a book that people felt like they could enter a world. I had never tried that before. So hopefully I've done it, but, but that was the point And that meant I, I cried a lot too. Um, but you know, I've sort of stopped crying now. Like the, the <laughs> I've read it through enough times. Um, it still feels like it happened to me. Uh, but, you know, I just recorded the audiobook and I was able to get through with only crying, I think, once.
2: Did you find that, you know, when you're describing emotions and uh, things that lodged with you over a long period of time, like I'm thinking about like a feeling of guilt that you had around Right when your father passes and you don't get the chance to say to him what you want to say, or your last conversation is not the one you wanted to have. Is that something where you realized that and then you sat to write it or that you sat to write it and through the process of writing it, realized it?
3: Definitely the latter. I write to understand myself and the world. So I was in therapy at various points when I wrote this, but I think, and now I say this to my own students, you know, you can only write at the speed of your own self-awareness. So I really was unable to write about certain times or unable to write certain scenes until I had written a rough draft that wasn't quite there, you know, and then it was going back in and, and, and looking at myself, you know, a bit externally as a character, Um, And, and realizing things that I think had I only ever been thinking about it, I'm not sure I would have accessed. So it's a process, I would say, also getting older, like I never could have written this book before now. And probably 15 years from now, I would have different insights, and I would write it differently again. But here is now, you know, this book is, is a time capsule of the meaning I've been been able to make thus far in my life of these events. But every time you have new experiences, you revisit past events and interpret them in new lights. And I'm sure that's going to happen going forward. But I wouldn't have been able to do it till now. I, I think I needed some accumulated wisdom.
2: I mean, there's a level of sort of openness and vulnerability in writing something like this. I mean, you're talking about your uh, romantic life at different points. And you go into sort of necessary detail on certain aspects of, of things, and, and some of which are, are positive and some of which are negative. But what did it take for you to get comfortable doing that?
3: Oh, do, do I look comfortable?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I read the book, so you were comfortable enough to write beautifully about these topics. But when you're writing very intimate aspects, are you sort of not imagining that anyone will ever read it at that point? Like, how do you get through sort of writing those parts?
3: Exactly. I mean, I could only write it thinking that no one was going to break into my house and take something off of my computer before I was ready. I mean, I could not. I mean, you know, I wrote about my Barbie dyke bar, you know, like I had my Barbies have sex and, you know, anyway, small aside is only a sentence in the book. But that's one example, right? Like, I also wrote about, you know, My dating travails and 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 many other things, you know, my my biggest shames and disappointments and fears. And yes, it's completely I had to believe that no one might ever read it. And I think I am not someone who imagines an audience while I'm writing because it scares me. I mean, and I wrote this with a book deal in place, you know, so certainly my my conscious mind knew that a version of this would would see the light of day. But on a daily basis, when I'm writing about these intimate things, I couldn't think about somebody else reading it. And now, you know, you're one of the first people I've I've talked to and you're one of the first readers. I haven't had that many people read it yet. So this is going to be a really interesting kind of experience for me. I'm both really excited and really scared, you know, which is, is how I felt about most good things in my life. <laughs> you know, the sort of 50-50 mix of excitement and terror is a feeling I'm familiar with and and chase actively. So I think it's going to work out, you know, but I don't know. And I'm very nervous. I've never, I've never, ever put something this personal out into the world and never planned on it. And so I guess we'll see.
2: When you think about the audience that you would like it to be for, who do you imagine?
3: That's a great question because I, I do picture that person. I'm hoping this book resonates with anybody who has been disappointed by life in even a small way. Um, It could be the loss of a person, a place, a creature they adore, But it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be the loss of a job, a core relationship, a chance, some aspect of their physical capacity or capabilities. I think anyone who's been marked by disappointment, that that somehow life hasn't quite turned out the way you think and that they're open to seeing not just pain in that, but using that pain as a forge to become the person they want to become.
2: And that's sort of an interesting question raised by the book is that that pain did forge your, your drive in some ways to become the professional person you are. And then also started feeling like it was costing you on the personal level, it feels like. And so would you want it to be different or would you just have want to have processed it differently? Like the kids who go to the center who are learning to process grief, if you had been able to go to one of those centers would you have turned out to be not as driven as you are?
3: I probably would still be just as driven. I hope so in some ways. You know, what I'm trying to do and what I think a lot of the book is about is to try to untangle what other people want from us from what we want for ourselves. And often those are overlapping things and maybe it doesn't matter. But in my case, I've always wanted to figure out, could I be just as motivated to achieve or to do good things for others without being motivated by fear and anxiety, but being motivated by something else, or that's maybe partly fear and anxiety. Um, but to not have that be my, my sole motivation. And that's a journey I'm still on. I don't think it's ever done. But that's one thing that I believe a lot of kids who got early grief support that's something I, I was kind of jealous of is that I believe they they had a bit of a break from self-blame and recrimination and guilt so that other motivating factors can seep in and so that's one thing I would do differently which is that I would question my own narrative about you know being bad other people can't see it that I may be getting prizes but really I'm bad and and no one knows you know that I, I wasted so long feeling that way. And that's a shame. Um, you know, but I, I still live with it now. Trust me. You know, there's nothing like putting a book out in the world, you know, that can call up, you know, your loudest shrieking demons. Like I you're bad. I mean you're not bad. We know you're excellent. Um No,
2: I've heard it. I know I know the voice you're talking about.
3: Right? Like I particularly creative people. I mean that's
2: why it's funny to ask like, you know, what's the audience you imagine for the book? I mean the the true answer for anyone who puts out a book is I don't know, a million people, like the audience is everyone, like every, whoever's buying the books that are on the New York Times bestseller list at the top for 50 weeks. Uh, that's that's the audience I'm actually aiming for, you know? But, exactly. And the question is like, when you don't get that, what are the voices inside your head then tell you about what happened?
3: Exactly. And that's where I am now, where I keep telling myself, Laurel, listen, if one person reads this and feels slightly less lonely in this life or maybe stops blaming themselves just a tiny bit or even for five minutes or even for an hour while reading the book, or if it encourages people to ask some questions that maybe they're avoiding asking of the people they love um, or making them face their own fears of mortality in a slightly healthier way, then, then my job here is done. You know, I believe that in my heart You know, what happens is I check my email, you know, and there's like something from my lovely publicist from Simon & Schuster, you know, (laughs) so-and-so said no, or so-and-so's considering it, or, you know, like whether I'm on the Today Show or not is not going to be the mark of success of the last seven years I spent writing this book, right? Um, I know that in my heart, but in practice, oh my God, in practice, it's hard to remember sometimes.
2: Now, you talked about the journey to sort of understanding these things and you still being on it now. Part of this that's reflected in the book is you catalog some of the ways that you're you're trying to figure out what's going on in your life, including some things that are uh, I don't know the best way to describe. It. You're a person of science. You have a PhD. You've spent your adult life writing a lot about science, and some of the avenues that you pur- pursue. I'm not saying they're outside the realm of science, but they might be looked at skeptically from a certain kind of scientific perspective. You go on a fasting retreat, you end up, you can describe it better than me, but with a a kind of vision. But like, how did you get comfortable both doing that and then writing
3: about it? Well, again, I would not say I am comfortable writing about it, nor was I comfortable (laughs) doing it.
2: I keep Um, projecting comfort on you where, where maybe it's unwarranted.
3: No, I'm glad I exude that, whether or not it's how I feel, you know, it's good. I do want to be a calming presence, even though You know, we talk about duck syndrome um, with my students that, you know, on the outside, you look like a placid duck and under the water, you're just madly paddling. Um, You know, I'm trying to be the same duck all the way through, but sometimes it doesn't quite work. Um, I felt that I would be silly to keep trying doing the same things I'd always been doing if it wasn't working. You know, and also the more I am, the more time I've always spent, you know, with say like theoretical physicists or mathematicians, you know, it's always shocking, like how weird they are, you know. Um, people people think that really successful scientists you know are, are serious you know they're some of the weirdest people you will ever meet and in california you know we say woo like oh you know don't this sounds too woo i mean they are very woo in many ways um and i i learned that firsthand at MIT and a lot of the other institutions i've been part of and so i would say the the dividing line you know between what modalities that other people might think of as weird and those that I think are weird and that many scientists think are weird is actually very different um, oftentimes people look at the sciences from the outside and think they're much more staid than they really are, so I will say that secondly, um you know, I asked for advice, so I did report out some of this memoir and Um, one person that I learned a lot from is a woman named Andrea Bass. She is an art therapist um, and works with dying children um, and also the siblings of dying children in the wake of a loss to help them deal and integrate that loss into the rest of their lives. And I was so amazed by her. And wanted to know how she could do something that by all accounts other people might think was just so incredibly hard day after day um to work with kids in so much pain facing something so insurmountable and then their siblings and families and i wanted to know where motivation like that came from and so many of the things that i tried you know like that vision fast and um sand tray therapy, where it's in many ways not really verbal and you move things around in the sand. These are modalities that we often use with kids precisely because sometimes they're not verbal. Um, So how can you work out with your body that which your, your language is insufficient to work out? And as someone who, you know, as a writer, I have depended on my voice and my fingertips for a really long time to work things out. It was kind of a break and a new way in to try these other things. And it was therapists like Andrea Bass who really helped open my world to other possibilities.
2: And when you sat down to write about it, did you have skeptical voices in your head saying, did that really happen the way I thought it happened? Or did you feel confident and clear that it happened the way that you experienced it.
3: Yeah. Well, one thing that happened to me was a vision of the afterlife. I'm just, I'm just going to go for it here. And I didn't
2: want to spoil it, but yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, I am deeply secular. I, I was raised Jewish, but I would have told you, you know, I don't really believe in God. I, I'm not observant. Um, if someone told me I was going to have a vision, you know, I, I would have laughed. Um, and yet it came for me. So, I think and I had to write about it because it happened to me. It no one has to believe me, you know, but I had to write about it, just like I wrote about everything else. It felt as real to me as anything else, you know, working in the archives of a natural history museum, being on a in the wards, talking to physicians. You know, it didn't feel different. And so that's why it made sense to include between the covers of the same book, right? Like, if, if it had felt like an untrustworthy experience, I wouldn't have included it.
2: When it came to experiences that involved other people, your friends, your ex-romantic partners, your current romantic partner, your family, how did you approach writing about them? Did you get permission from them, write first, and then have them read it, or none of the above?
3: I didn't get permission from anyone first. I needed to know if I could do it first. So I wrote a first few drafts using everyone's real names, including everything I could and just hope no one would find it, you know, before I was ready. And then once I realized like, oh, maybe I do have something here. I'm not quite sure I asked permission, but I did show it to people. And I gave my closest people the option to change anything. And I offered people the chance to change their names. In the end, the only person whose name, who wanted their name changed, is my stepdad. Um, So I changed his name and I changed many of the people that I casually dated. Um, But the core people in the book are, it's their names. And they gave me permission and their blessing. And, you know, I kind of feel sorry. If for my brother, you know, and my close family members, like, it must be weird you know to have a writer in the family um I couldn't have written it if my dad was alive, it wouldn't have worked um
2: why do you say that
3: uh, uh you know the a uh, fair chunk of the book is about this, but he he was deeply in control of his narrative, which was also our narrative, and so much of the last fifteen years of my life have been about how do I become vulnerable in my work. It's not something I was raised up as a writer to do i It scared me to death, and so the book is deeply vulnerable, and it had to be written that way. It would be boring. There would be no story if i if I didn't write it that way, so I don't think he would have approved um And then the last part of the book is about my mom, and and I couldn't have written that about her if she was alive either. So I would say that is a piece of advice, you know. (laughs) I would give it. It is easier um to write about people if they are no longer here. I mean, surely something could get hurled at me, a tomato from the afterlife. I'm waiting. Um, but I think they I think they would approve. I'm pretty sure. Um, and my brother is happy with it. Thank God I, I wouldn't be doing it. And and my now husband is also happy with it. Um, I did have to take out some slightly more graphic parts of the sex scenes because he was too mortified to have people he worked with read it,
2: but not all of them.
3: <laughs> not all. No, nope, not all. Not all. I know. Oh, it's gonna be funny, but it's all positive, you know. At least about him. I, you know, I, I didn't want to write like a negative expose. You know, we just got married. I, if, if there was a negative expose to write, I, he, he wouldn't be my partner.
2: You met you you in passing. There, you said uh, I was raised as a writer. And made me think, who raised you as a writer? Who would you identify as raising you as a writer? Did you raise yourself? Did someone else? Like, where did it come from, your your fundamental sort of approaches and skills?
3: My mentors. um, I've been lucky. I was really lucky uh, in graduate school. You know, I was in graduate school for history and anthropology of science. But... My main advisor, her name is Harriet Ritvo. She's incredible. She really cared about writing. She didn't have to, but she did. Um, and they really gave me a, a big range um, to write as myself, which I was really grateful for. And then when I came to the Bay Area, and I'd say 2009, I, I still really hadn't met any writers. Um, and through pop up, through you know many of our, our shared group of friends, I you know, I, I wanted to impress them. Um, I wanted to be like them. And then maybe two years into when I was thinking about writing this book, I was introduced to Cheryl Strayed, who was a huge uh, hero of mine. I just loved Wild, but I really also loved the Dear Sugar columns. I was living in San Francisco. Um, you know, when she was still doing those anonymously and really look forward to those coming out on the rumpus and just thought it was amazing what someone could do with an advice column and turn it into such brilliant personal essay writing. Um, And I was lucky to meet her at a time when I still didn't know what this book was. And she gave me some incredible advice. Um, My little assignment she gave me was to come up with, I think she phrased it as like 11 moments in which you learned something, like a scene in your life in which you learned something, and I really scrapped the format of the book I was working on at the time and went back and did this. And you know, now I've done it, uh, you know, with writers I'm teaching myself, and I, I think it's helped all of us. So I really did the book this way, where where I would take like three by five cards and I would draw a little drawing on the front. That just jogged my memory of a, a kind of moment of a scene in which there was an insight attached. And then on the back of the three by five card, I would write the insight. And then I put them up on the wall in an order that I thought more or less would work as a book. And then, you know, every week or a few months or wh- however long it took me to write a section, I would take the card off the wall and I would write it. And then I would put the card back up again. Um, and that really, you know, I don't know that she intended uh, that to be my system or anything but it but it taught me a system and i think i'll now use that forever it really helped me and it's helped a lot of my students
2: and when you're teaching these students these are these are medical students at stanford is the writing that you're teaching them for them about themselves to process their own experience or is it like writing for patients writing for other people
3: sure yeah i i'm the Director of Writing and Storytelling, which is a really fun title because it can basically mean anything. And I would say, you know, what my students write depends on what they want to do. So because I'm me and they know the kind of work I do, you know, I tend to attract students who want to write nonfiction, narrative nonfiction. And then I have lots of students, you know, who are working on fiction pieces. Um, other students are writing personal essay. Um, about their dating lives or um, really about anything at all that you, you can think of. And I find, and I don't know if you find this way, you know, you work with so many writers, the, the advice is the same in many ways, um, no matter what. So it's all about, you know, how are you going to charm the reader or the listener into spending time with you? What do you have to say? Why now? Why you, what insight is behind this story? What are, why does it matter? The world is noisy, you know. What what can we learn from the story you're gonna tell? So I'd say I work with them about all kinds of things, but it's not explicitly like this will make the patient experience better. Like you will be a better doctor in the emergency room if you write this personal essay with me. No, no, no. But what I think is that to become a good writer, you have to be in touch with your empathy. You have to learn how to communicate complex things very clearly. Often vulnerably, and that's something they don't get trained to do in their clinical education. And so my hope is that by learning to write a killer personal essay, they also become someone who's more likely to be able to explain to you as a patient, you know, your end of life choices or why one chemo option for you might be better than another, because those are the same kinds of skills and they're they're high stakes moments of communication. And they really don't get a lot of, I'd say, humanitarian based or humanities based training in medical school. So it's kind of a sneaky way to get in and affect the patient experience. But I wouldn't say that's my primary goal. My primary goal is, is just to help them get out of their own way to tell a universal story about their own experience.
2: Does Stanford know you're doing this?
3: I mean, now they do. It
2: feels like you trick them into allowing you to do this somehow.
3: (laughs) Definitely. I mean, it is the bravest, craziest thing I've ever done is that I walked in there after graduate school. I really thought this book was going to be about how doctors die differently than the rest of people because, you know, both of my parents chose to do right to die. It was illegal when my father did it. Um, now it's legal, at least in the state of California. I have a lot of opinions about it. Um, and I I thought it would be interesting to do a much more sort of reported piece, but still narrative, you know, around doctors who are living um, with terminal diagnoses and the choices they make around ending their own lives. That's what I thought I was going to write about. Um, and So, you know, that's sort of how I entered in and I wanted a hospital to like be able to skulk about, you know, where people could get so used to me that they would barely notice I was there. And an advisor of mine in Boston told me that Stanford had a medicine in the arts program. And so I went down and uh, asked for a meeting, got a meeting and went and talked to Audrey Schaefer, who is an anesthesiologist and poet um, at Stanford and the Palo Alto VA and she said that they had had someone who was teaching writing workshops um, who had retired recently and no one was doing it right now. And so I just asked if it could be me. <laughs> and I, I said, listen, I don't, I've never taught, I mean, a damn thing in my life. I, I am not qualified at all. I was honest about that. Um, and really, I just want to be here because I want to report my next project. But sure, like all. And then she said yes. And then I said, oh, and I don't want to teach inside. I only want to teach outside. I knew I didn't want to teach like in a classroom because I don't know. I just, I think with cell phones and everything, I just, and also it was something that these baby doctors would need, would be getting out of the hospital, out of the clinic. outside time. Yes. And um, so she said, yes, it was a miracle. So I started offering, you know, we rent out farms, little farms uh, in Northern California and I make them camp. They come. We, we spend a day or two. We camp. We eat good, simple food. They write. We bring people to talk to them a little bit, you know, about the writing life or the editing life and how to pitch or, you know, um, how to do spoken word. We, we've done all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I, I made a weird job for myself that involves like farm animals, writing and medicine. And I, I, it's a miracle to me, most of all.
2: And did or does teaching them change how you write?
3: Yes. You know, when you're reading a hundred essays and they're all going wrong in the same three ways, you can see a pattern that when you're only reading your work um, in isolation or maybe other work that's already been polished and has been published, you don't see as much. So. I've learned so much. It's a little bit like trying to learn how to teach your native language. You just grow up knowing that something sounds right. That's how I felt about writing because I never, I, I, I wasn't in graduate school for writing. So anything that I ends up okay on the page is just because I sort of stumbled there. I didn't know how to teach it, and so giving them a prompt, getting a bunch of assignments, seeing many students sort of falling into the same pothole makes you realize that A, there's a pothole. B, you have to learn how to describe it. C, you have to tell them how to avoid it. And so in doing that, I learned to see those potholes more clearly in my own work. I still make them all the time, you know. I'm not I'm not sure I'm a better writer but I am quicker to see problems in my own work because I've had to articulate those problems and how to avoid them for my students. And and I got to say I I didn't think I was going to like teaching like I really did just sort of initially do this as a kind of quid pro quo because I wanted to report at the hospital there. And then as soon as I started doing it, I mean, they getting to know these young people and seeing them come up and, and share their work or or just learn to articulate their own inner lives in a clearer way. And I, I didn't realize it would change my life to the extent that it has. And the the terror, you know, I really was one of those people that thought like writers teach if they couldn't make enough money writing, which is such a horrific thing to admit here, but that it is what I thought. Um and now I think it's the best possible thing you can do as a writer is leave a legacy for others of how you avoided, I don't know, making mistakes in your work or or figuring out um, how to fix them. That's such a sacred gift to to pass on because our problems are the same always, right? Like I don't think we're dealing with stuff in our work that writers a hundred years ago weren't dealing with. I, it's just the technology that's changed.
2: Well, that that reminds me, the fourth section of your book opens with this. Orwell quote which is I might butcher it a little bit it's like if you want a happy ending it depends of course on where you where you stop the story and that really struck it really kind of transformed the book a little bit for me because the book did reach a very natural lovely ending point right before there like things things had worked out and we could just sail off knowing that you had made some self discoveries you'd found love Everything was great. So tell me about the decision to extend the story and then where you did decide to end it. We should say this would be a spoiler if you're going to read the book.
3: Oh, yeah. So hit pause now. Go read the book and then come back. I'll be here with cake and Kleenex for you. (laughs) Um, All I know is that there is always another piano that's about to fall out of the sky and on top of you if you were alive. It just happens. Um. The story had reached a natural conclusion, but because I was writing about my life, there is no such thing, you know. Um, I fought writing the last quarter of the book. It, It takes place during the pandemic. It had been really recent. So for the most part, the events in the book that I was writing about had happened in some cases, you know, 40 years before, then 10 years before, five years before, and I'd had time to sit on them and make meaning of them. And to be thoughtful. And I was worried that if I was writing about my own life while it was happening, how was I gonna be able to say anything wise about it? I didn't even yet know who I was yet. Like all these things were still happening to me. But I caved. <laughs> and you know, it wasn't even my editor or my agent who told me it, it was my by now husband. Um, and he just really felt like, listen, Laurel, you're just further down the path of so many of us whose parents are aging into a place now in which we're going to have to have these difficult conversations, you know, where people who, you know, 10 years ago really weren't talking about their death. Now, like all the boomers are inching closer, right? Um, And, you know, I'm in my mid-40s. Most of my friend's parents in the United States, you know, were, were still alive. And he really felt like, You have lived this in a kind of extreme way, but in a way where you might have something helpful to say for other people. And he felt really strongly about that, Um, that here was a chance to help some people face their own deaths um, with a kind of bravery that I had seen firsthand that maybe I could write about. And I just really didn't want to do it. I wanted to be done. I was a year past my book deadline. You know, I wanted to be done. Um, But he was right. And I'm I'm glad I did it.
2: Was there, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm making light of it, which I'm absolutely not. But like, there's a part of going through the deaths of both your parents and all the things you write about. And then at the very end, having your ancestral home destroyed by a wildfire, that's almost like, Did it feel like it was almost too much to put into the book?
3: Yes. Yeah, that was also why I didn't want to put it in there. You know, Where I was just like, aren't people going to get tired? I'm tired and I'm I'm living it, you know? Um, Yeah. And also, I walk around right now. I mean, actually, this is interesting. My anxiety has gotten a little bit better since the final edits were turned in and the book is now printed and I couldn't add anything else. But I did... It was this weird, funny, superstitious part of me that just was worried something else was going to happen that I would feel like I need to do like yet another tragedy that I would need to have to smush into this thing. And there was something about when I finally couldn't add anything else that a little bit of that anxiety went away where it's now like, OK, that's done. Do I think hard things are done happening in my life? No, of course not. Um, But because I was writing about hard things, there was this weird pressure of like, oh God, well, what if something else happens? Do do I need to get it in there? Do I need to incorporate that? Is it a lie if I don't share it? Um, And on the other hand, being like, did this overwhelm people? Like I'm having nightmares every night right now before the book comes out. Uh, I remember this from the last one. It's just, you know, you can't control it. And I... Yes, I will be fine if one person reads it, but also as you said, I of course I want the whole world to read it. And I had a nightmare the other night. I was at some sort of book festival or something and one of the organizers came up to me and they were like, "Uh, your time to speak has been shrunk to 90 seconds and also your books have not arrived." And I I was like, "Oh no." And so I like was stuck inside this weird building in a place I've never been and I was running floor to floor looking for my books. And then I find like these three organizers and they're sitting at a folding table at full on folding chairs. And I was like, hi, I'm Laurel Brayman and I'm about to go on, but I lost my speaking slot and I don't have a book. And they kind of calmly looked at me and one at the end said, oh, Laurel Brayman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I work uh, on Reese Witherspoon's book club and we considered your book, but too many bad things happened. Oh <laughs> and that's when I woke up
2: very explicit
3: my subconscious is this is exactly what I'm worried about you know (laughs) that like somehow too many hard things are going to turn people off and yeah one of my core fears is that somehow writing about these hard things you know will overwhelm people or it's too much and then I just come back to my inner core which is wait a minute you know like I listen to sad music to feel better. Right. Like I cry in a book and it sets me free. I feel less alone. So turning away from it and the hard things has never been in my DNA. I I didn't have the option A and B. It's where my life's motivation comes from. So, of course, you know, I had to I had to put in the hard things and the chips will fall where they may. But also I do think, you know, people like myself are out there who are looking for stories that give us license to feel our own hard things
2: yeah and if i could make the argument that we're at a happy ending part of the orwell quote the happening part of the story the book is it's about to come out and at least one person has read it and been moved by it and that person is me
3: oh thank you so much Evan.
2: thank you for coming on the show laurel
3: i'm so grateful
2: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thank you to Laurel Breitman for taking the time. Her book is called What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss and Love. Our editor this week is Seth Kelly. Our show notes are from Megan Valley. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. We produce this show in partnership with Vox. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.